Hello and welcome to our latest GCP short and one I am really excited to introduce you to. It is always great to hear directly from captive owners and with us for the next 20 minutes are two of the most articulate and innovative in the US captive market. Alongside friend of the podcast, Jason Flaxbeard, an alternative risk transfer and captive expert at Beecher Carlson, we are joined by Michael LaPerch, Vice President of Risk Management at Pride Industries in California, and Courtney Claflin, Executive Director of Captive Programs at the University of California. Both of these two organizations own multiple captives in Washington, D.C., our topic of conversation is defining risk appetite in a hardening market, and we get some really great detail on the potential captive mechanisms to respond in this difficult environment. We start by hearing from Mike and then Courtney on their experiences of the hard market over the past 18 months and what conversations this has led to with senior management and their boards. It uh, certainly has been a hardening market, and we we began to really see this uh, in March or April of 2019. I can recall being at the Risk and Insurance Management Society conference and meeting with some of our insurance carriers, and they didn't seem to have any hesitation to tell us they were looking to halve our limits and wanted 35% rate increases over the rates they were charging the prior year. We obviously began having dialogue with our CFO and finance team at that point and looking at more creative ways to implement uh, activities with, within one or more of our captive solutions. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and I'd, I'd kind of frame it in the context that it's probably the worst kept secret with my senior leaders. One of the nice things is, is that I get to work with them on a daily basis through our governance we have numerous committee meetings, finance and audit, as well as underwriting and claims, which all the senior leaders sit on. So we've been communicating for well over probably a year and a half that this was going to come. And so there's no surprise to them. They understand the ramifications, not only to the university system, but also to the captive and, and the types of capacity and terms and things that we may need to put up during this market. And then, Courtney, in terms of the, the captive itself, obviously, you've got a number of captives at the University of California, and you, and you use them very, very well. Have you already found more or new useful ways to kind of use your captive in a, in a reactionary manner to the, to the price hikes and, and the hardening market? Well, I think we've, we always have. Uh, when I came to, to UC, one of the, the, the first things that I did is begin to quota share through up our, our towers of coverage with the syndicates and the reinsurers to partner with them and to ingratiate ourselves to the marketplace. And so that's, that's occurred year over year over year. Um, and so that the, the marketplace is, for lack of a better word, well-versed in our ability to participate, our willingness to participate, to offset lack of capacity, terms and conditions. We, we provide buffer layers, quota shares, uh, full layers of coverage. So this is just business as usual for us. One of the things that's unique about this now, though, is, is that the amount of capacity that, that, that we'll put up with our captive platform is going to increase exponentially. So that lends itself to uh, another layer of due diligence with not only senior leadership, but with the regulators and the financial team behind the captive, because we'll end up putting up much more capacity through those mechanisms this year than we have before. 
That's interesting, Courtney. I think uh, your idea of the quota share is an excellent one. I know that last year when we were talking to our carriers for July 2019 renewal, they were talking about some of the catastrophic high uh, dollar claims that have been paid out. One in particular stuck out in my mind relating to a, a gentleman who was severely beaten at a grocery store in Georgia, and it ended up being tens of millions of dollars settlement with the grocery chain. And that's what is be, really was the, uh, the the impetus or the, the, the spark that lit the fire for the market that we're seeing right now. Everyone wants to be excess of 10, preferably 25 million. And I think a quota share is an excellent way to help make that market a little bit more palatable cost-wise. We're doing that with one of our captives at Pride right now as well. Uh, for a $25 million tower, we're doing a, a quota share of one-third, one-third, one-third. And there seemed to be a better appetite for each of them keeping less than $10 million, uh, in their portfolio. Well, Michael, this, I, I completely agree with you. I think that there's a lot of markets that are coming through now and are saying that, uh, that we want to be excess of certain limits. And the reason why is because I don't think insurance companies from a risk transfer perspective really want to play in frequency layers. We, we, we believe at, at Beecher Carlson that the, the frequency should always be retained at the uh, the corporate level anyway, because to transfer a loss that you know is going to happen, all that does is it puts uh, an administrative and a profit burden on that particular placement with the risk transfer market. And if you know it's going to happen, just just retain it yourself, place it in your captive, and then use your capital in the best particular best possible way that you can. And the way to do that, as you said, is to, to is to take layers of your uh, of, of your program uh, and place them into a captive, put them on your balance sheet, put them in a place where capital is is cheaper. But in order to do that, Michael, how 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 do you go up to your boss? And say, hey, we're going to take some more risk on this. What's the first question he asks when you uh, when you propose that uh, uh, that solution to him? Well, I think that's a great question, Jason. It's it's often looking at you know what what did the actuarial report say? What's the what's the confidence interval that you're you're planning to fund at? Are we making sure that we are, if not bulletproof, uh, we can at least take a hit if one comes, right? And so I know we put a layer of our healthcare plan into our captive where we're indemnifying our our parent company for all medical claims. And uh, they wanted to know at fully insured, what is the premium? And then what is the premium you're proposing to write into the captive? And there's, a, there's obviously a gap there. So we were able to demonstrate that we were funding into the captive at the 80% confidence interval for the health care plan and that the health insurer was funding at 95%. And so when the CFO looks at that and says, well, you're funding at 80% confidence interval, I'm fine with that. I'm willing to take that risk. Why should I write that additional premium to the outside carrier if we can make some underwriting profit? I, I completely agree. And, and one of the things we're seeing is um, is the way that model risk is being priced into some of these risk transfer markets. One of the, my favorite quotes at all is, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And this is the way that we <laughs> that we tend to try and look at the way that the, the insurance is, is being priced. So in theory, the way that uh, models are built uh, in a very, very simplistic way is you take your, your, your loss pick at, at the expected level or the 75th percentile level, and then you there's a risk capital charge for the possibility of losses exceeding that amount. You, you multiply that risk man- that, that, that difference in confidence level by by the risk management charge to come up with the with the premium. You add on administrative costs to get to the the, the, the ultimate premium that, that, that is paid in the marketplace. But the issue is on the model risk is that the cost of of, of that uh, of, of the the piece in between expected loss and the 99th or the 
99.6 percentile confidence level is subject to, especially on long tail, uh, sorry, on uh, on on lines with huge standard deviations like property and cyber. It, it's that 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 is being priced at at a much higher level these days, and that's increasing premium. And that if you can if you as an entity can absorb some of that that excess into your uh, in, into your captive or into your own balance sheet, you're taking away a lot of the uncertainty around the pricing inside the marketplace because the the pricing of uncertainty is is actually is, is going way up right now and and that's that's the capital that is, the insurance companies are required to to lay on the line for an uncertain event and if you're paying extra for that that, that that's the area in which the trade off needs to uh, need, needs to take place yeah i would agree with that i mean for example uh, ncci has put out a model that uh, enables you to try and calculate the impact of COVID-19 on your workers' comp program. So states like California, for example, a couple of states in the South have just recently signed legislation that that make COVID-19 a presumed work-related illness uh, if, in fact, the employee is not working from home. Well, how do you model that? How do you determine what the impact is if you're in a large deductible or you're self-insured for your work comp program. Uh, we've been working through that at Pride and, and with our actuaries and our captive management team. And it's it's very dynamic because if you're using World Health Organization or CDC data, it changes weekly. And so you're looking at what's the death rate? What's the hospitalization rate? What's the, you know, going into a, a situation where you may be in intensive care and all of those get factored into the model uh, and, but they're definable. It's it's the things that are really difficult to get our arms around that I insure completely. Deutsche Bank just came out with a study this week that said there's a one in three chance that uh, one of four major tail risks will happen in the next 10 years. Major influenza pandemic killing over 2 million people, a catastrophic volcanic eruption, a major solar flare, or a global war. Well, COVID-19 has only has killed less than a half a million people globally, which is a, a tragedy. But they're talking about a, a one in three chance that we could have this happen again in the next decade, and, and it would be much, much worse. Uh, and in two decades, they're saying it's almost a 60% probability that one of those things will happen. So those are the things that kill organizations uh, if, you're not, if you don't have sufficient uh, resources to bear. And that's interesting, Mike, because... There's a huge amount of risk that sits in every organization that's just not insurable. The marketplace doesn't want to write pandemic. They don't want to write war. All the things you just mentioned there are pretty much uninsurable risks. So there's only one place left to put those, right? You put them in your captive and you fund for the eventuality. Now, what I just want to bring it back to is this question about defining risk appetite. We're in a hard market. Defining the risk appetite of your captive and, and of your organization is obviously extremely important, more important than ever right now. So Courtney, how can you just briefly explain to us how do you go about defining the appetite of the captive, what to buy commercial coverage for, where to attach reinsurance, and what just not to insure at all, you know, bearing in mind that the, the previous conversations. So how do you go about is there a particular exercise you go about doing to define that risk appetite of the captive? Well I believe my risk appetite is is determined by the financial strength of my captive. At the university I tell people I don't create the risk and I don't manage the risk. I finance the risk. We have people that we've got 1,500 boots on the ground that manage the risk day in and day out. My role is to, to grow, grow the captive so that we can grow surplus and so that we can be turned to in a time of need. There is no quote unquote 
appetite because I'll do anything to help the university with with the captive portfolio. It's only limited to my financial ability to support it, either with direct issue policies, with quota share arrangements, providing uh, cover, direct issue cover on, on excluded coverages, uh, whether it be providing layers of cover, whatever the case may be, we're here to help. And I, and I guess it's kind of a, a confusing answer as to how to define our appetite, but our appetite is, is whatever it takes. And as long as I have the financial wherewithal inside the captive to support the university, I'll do it. Now we're limited to capacity. You know, we only have so much money, so we can only take on so much capacity with the quota shares and the retentions, et cetera. One of the other things is, is we've got a very, very sophisticated modeling system that we've integrated into the captive operations, as well as into the risk management operations of the university that can help us determine, are we doing it the right way financially? You know, we can pour data from 50 different lines of coverage with a, a wide variety of different retentions, losses, expected losses, actuarial data, dump it all in there. And, and what it can do is a, a million calculations a minute that say, well, instead of a $10 million retention on property and a $10 million retention on EPL. For instance, you'd be better off taking a $30 million retention on EPL and a $2.5 million retention on property. Your money might come out the same. So if you you add the modeling to the quote-unquote appetite, which is, is whatever it takes and whatever I can afford to do, that kind of all towers up to what can we do and how can we do it, which kind of goes back to your question on what's our appetite. Jason, how much more interest are you seeing from uh, captive clients about wanting to look at all the different options in terms of what Courtney mentioned there regarding, you know, if your captive takes a certain higher layer or attaches at a certain different point, it will impact your premium this way. Has that always been a conversation been going on with some clients or are you seeing some clients wanting to look at it a bit more uh, granular detail about what the different options are and what different impact that has on their on their coverage and their premium in terms of where the captive plays a part. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, and one of the uh, catalysts for that discussion has been COVID-19. COVID-19 really precipitated you know, the tide going out. Um, and a lot of companies realized how, how, you know, how big a bathing suit they were actually wearing as a result of that tide going out. So COVID-19 pushed through many, many balance sheets, an unexpected loss. So a lot of companies were forced to actually take a look at their risk appetite and say, hey, look, we've, we've got all this risk. We weren't financing this risk. How, how do we change the way that we look at this in the future? Uh, if you look at some companies out there, they've, they've revised earnings releases for this year. Some of them have pulled guidance for the rest of this year because of COVID-19. And a lot of them are now saying, we, we don't know what impact COVID-19 has on us. This is a, this is a risk that exists inside in, inside the market. It's a hazard risk, yes. It's a market risk. It's an appetite. It, it, it's a discussion about all sorts of uh, the intersections of many, many risks. Um, pan- pandemic is not is not insurable unless we get this this, um, this this governmental scheme in place. So a lot of companies are saying, how do I stop this happening again? How do I actually define the appetite around the risks that I know I have? So first of all, you identify those risks. Then as Courtney says, you, you, you model as many of them as you can. 
You model them based on actuarial outputs uh, and inputs. You model them on uh, specific uh, uh, stochastic methodology out there, RMS, AIR. You take a look at specific models on cyber, DNO, and, and you, you, you meld them all together. And then you take a look at what their output is on, a, on an aggregated basis and try and define how much of that you can take. So let's say you're a $5 billion company or, or a $500,000 uh, company and you're dealing in, um, uh, in in a, in a risky risky area of the business. Let's say uh, you produce opioids. Like there, there was a company there that uh, that did that uh, last year. The risk that that company as, assumes, if it's bigger than the value of your company, it's it's, it's not worth continuing. It's it, it, the, the business you're in is too risky. Your tolerance uh, of, of risk is different from your appetite. Most companies can tolerate most of the risk that exists to their to their balance sheet, but you've got um, uh, you've got an appetite discussion which which comes from that. So if I can tolerate all of that model risk, if if one of those risks hits me in that unexpected level, my earnings per share might be down, my cash flow might be down, my my ability to pay dividends may may be affected. Or I was going to buy company X, Y, or Z. Um, you know that 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 has been impacted by this unexpected event. That all needs to be quantified, and that leads to an appetite discussion. Once you've defined your appetite, then you can buy insurance above that amount. So the the way that I've always looked at this, um, and I'll be interested to hear from uh, from Mike and and Courtney, is I think companies should retain frequency risks. They should then retain a level of risk above that equal to their appetite, and they should transfer above that to the marketplace. Because at the time where you transfer it to the marketplace. That's when the pain hits you so hard that you need that cash. So just final question then to you, Jason. I mean, obviously, you you deal day to day with a large number of sophisticated captives of, of varying sizes. And of course, you talk to the, the commercial market regularly as well. Where do you think, you know, if we're seeing so much more risk being retained by captives or insured by captives, whether that's extended cover of existing captives or new captives, just existing captives kind of bringing new risks or, or extending their cover in, do, do we ever think that once the captive is insuring that, how often does that do we see that risk return to the commercial market? And is that a problem for the commercial market? Um, yes and no. Um, so the uh, the question, m- most of the questions I answer always start with the word maybe. Um, so sorry about that. But uh, <laughs> my, my, the, f- the first way I think about that is uh, placing some of these risks that we've just talk about, talked about in, inside a captive is like, and I wouldn't know this myself. Uh, it's like giving birth. You know, it, it, it's a hard, hard process. But once it's done, you've created a, a baby that you always think looks pretty, and you want to see grow and develop and become a uh, uh, you know an extension of, of of your family. And and so that is the way that I, I see that the, the, the captives are starting to grow. Once a lot of these risks are placed inside captives. I don't see them coming back out. Once the uh, the board and the the treasury function have got used to the way these operate, I, I believe that that risk stays inside captives. I think that the market is reacting to uh, to its use as uh, as a funding mechanism for frequency layers. I think that it's pulling away from uh, areas where losses are expected, and they're starting to charge appropriate premiums for uh, for uh, taking on a risk in a in an excess layer. Where there is there is a chance of loss, but where they can get paid appropriately for it, I don't think that premium is the key anymore inside the insurance companies. I think profit is the key, underwriting profit, uh, and even more so now that interest rates are, are starting to, to dip even further. So I, I think we can, we're in a, a period of underwriting discipline at the, corp, at the corporate level and the market level. Um, but I think that uh, that is th- this extended hard market 
and I believe it is going to be extended for at least another 18 months, two years, is, is, is going to drive everybody to, into their captive. And once people are comfortable, I think they're going to stay there. Well, thank you to Courtney, Michael and Jason Flatspeard from Friends of the Podcast, Beecher Carlson for a really fascinating 20 minutes. If you enjoyed that conversation and want to hear more from the trio, then there is another four minutes of that conversation in our previous episode, GCP33. Just scroll back in your feed to find that. You'll find that four minutes about 10 minutes in and that's all fresh content that you wouldn't have heard in this episode. Full biographies and photos can be found in this episode description and, of course, on our great guests page on www.globalcaptivepodcast.com. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. (laughs) 